Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 106, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or or can show forth all his praise? Let us remain standing and sing together hymn number 290 as our hymn of praise. Be seated. And let us pray together. Our gracious Savior, we look to you in heaven, uh, acknowledging your majesty and power, and uh, that you are the author of our salvation. We thank you that salvation is something that is a free gift that we do not have to earn or purchase with our own good works. Or by our own righteousness, which uh, we possess none. We are totally uh, poor when it comes to good works. We are poor in spirit because we recognize our poverty. We are those who mourn over our poverty and over our sin. We are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Father, we are still seeking these things. We are seeking uh, the fullness of blessing which is found in your kingdom and which is displayed in your Son. Lord Jesus, you are the King of the universe, you are the one through whom the world was made and the one for whom it was made. You are set above it as its Lord and its King. And uh, we look to you in your infinite majesty, uh, not only as the Lord, but also as our Savior. 
And because you are our Savior, we devote our full lives to you. Everything that we have and all that we are is yours. We've been bought with a price, and that price is your own dear blood, which was precious to you, but it's also precious to us. It was not so precious that you were unwilling to, to shed it for us, and we, we thank you for that. We acknowledge uh, the gift of condescension that you who were rich became poor for our sakes, that we might uh, become rich in you. Father, we, we, we think of, uh, well, we think of the church and we think of the great need she has in, in the present hour to be strengthened and to be encouraged. We think of how uh, there is a, a spirit of worldliness cast uh, over certainly the nation, but also the church herself. And we are asking you to revive the church. We're asking you to strengthen the church. Dear Lord, we, we look to you in heaven and realize that we have no one in heaven on, or on earth but you, and that there is uh, nothing in all of the world that could ever satisfy our hearts but you. But as we come into the church and as we think of the state of the church in our land, uh, Lord, we, we do lament the state of things, and we ask you for a greater strength and a greater courage and a greater faith, uh, and, and certainly greater boldness from the pulpits, from the pastors. We also ask you for clarity in times of confusion. These are times of confusion. Christians themselves are at odds, uh, both in the political arena, even in, we never thought we would say this, but in the realm of public health. These things come into the church. Father, can we just confess to you that we need, we need real clarity. We need wisdom. We need guidance. We need unity in the churches. We need love. Father, you're the author of all these things. And James tells us to go to you uh, looking for wisdom. Well, we do that now. But we also pray for our nation, Father. We pray for the political realm. We pray for the, uh, the rulers that be, those in authority placed over us. Uh, Father, uh, we ask you that it, it seems strange to say that such a thing could even be possible today. Things are so far gone. But we ask you, Lord, that righteousness would indeed be ministered by the state. We pray that evildoers would be put down and that the good would be rewarded. And that the office of government would be something which is uh, pleasing to the people and most pleasing to the Christian. Because we know that they're ministers for a well-being. At least that's their, what they're supposed to be. That's why you set them up. Uh, Father, we pray that you would give them a sense and a vision of this themselves as we pray for them. That there would be a revival, so to speak, in the political arena. And that, again, uh, oh God... There might be a taste, if only an earthly taste, of righteousness in this land. We lament, for instance, oh God, the great evil of abortion. Why is it that you bear with this land, seeing that this evil prevails on a daily basis? It's difficult to imagine a nation more wicked than ours. God in heaven, uh, if you were to come against us with the severest judgments, worse than you brought upon Egypt, who would we, uh, how could we possibly object? And yet you have, you have, uh, you have, bore with us in our, our wickedness, and we don't know why. We can only hope that you have better things ahead. Days of revival, days of righteousness, days of blessing. Let us see better days, O oh God, and let us see peace in our land. If, if only that we as Christian people might go about our lives quiet and peaceably, and that we might go about our worship free from interference from the state or from society. We wish to go on worshiping you, O oh Lord. That is our greatest desire. And pray that you would, uh, you would secure this blessing for us. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.
The scripture reading I want to break in two. I want to finish Exodus chapter 8 and then read the first 12 verses of chapter 9. As we're dividing uh, the plagues in threes, three, 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 and one, there are ten plagues. So we're looking at the second set of three uh, and just, uh, just one of them here. So the fourth plague. Now the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh uh, as he comes out, uh, out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will occur. Then the Lord did so, and there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It's not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God. Uh, What is an abomination to the Egyptians? If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not then stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. Then Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you. And I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again and not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. And now in response to God's word, let us stand and sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly be seated. And having concluded the canons of Dort, uh, for the time being at least we'll be alternating the Apostles and the Nicene Creed and with time uh, perhaps we'll get tired of that and go back to the Westminster Confession or something like that. But uh, as, as you noted a while ago we, we substituted the morning confession uh, time for the Psalter which is nice. Uh, but uh, And perhaps we'll do something like that in the evening. But for now uh, we'll, we'll go on with the creeds. As a reminder, uh, the confessing of creeds is a historical aspect of worship. It, it's fitting that it would uh, be something that we do here in worship. It's one of the forms uh, that we Presbyterians observe. So it's a fitting thing for us to do. And so let us do so now with the Christian uh, church through the ages, confessing together the Apostles' Creed. You'll find it in your bulletin. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let us stand together and sing hymn number 294. Now let's conclude that reading. Now Exodus chapter 9 verses 1 through 12. Plagues 5 and 6. Exodus chapter 9 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence. On your livestock, which are in the fields, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. The Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died, but the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. Pharaoh sent and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and it will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt 
So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it toward the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. The magicians could not stand before Pharaoh because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for uh, the testimony of your actions for your people throughout the history of redemption. Uh, that history, in terms of sacred history, ended at the, the last page of Revelation. But it's the same story you continue to tell as we look through the pages of history. We see your mighty hand prevailing in every age. We look for it in our own age. But let us draw encouragement now from your word, we humbly pray. Amen. Well, once again, we are considering the second, uh, we are the ten plagues, and we're at the second set of the three plagues. We're dividing them into groups of three, and then separating the final or the tenth plague and considering it on its own. In some ways, these, these three plagues are not all that remarkable. You have uh, the, the death of the cattle, you have the swarms of flies and the boils, uh, and you can imagine uh, that in some sense. Uh, I might have wondered, I was wondering uh, earlier on what I might say about this, besides the fact that the Lord is uh, powerful and he hates sin. And perhaps those would be the two points of the sermon. Certainly these three plagues are no more remarkable than the first three. We see all the same features we saw last time. Only we are, I think, able to make certain observations here that we couldn't, that we either couldn't make last time or simply didn't. And as it turns out, there's a great deal that we can say about these plagues. I think I have uh, some nine points to share with you. I want to make then a, a series of observations about these three plagues under two main headings. And the first is the first big point that we find here. And if you study the text with any amount of uh, carefulness, you will immediately notice there is something here present that wasn't present last time. And that is the fact that the Lord was distinguishing between Israel and Goshen and the Egyptians. He even says as much, I will put a division between my people and your people. I will set apart the land of Goshen. The Lord will make a distinction. Uh, verse 22, verse 23, and verse 4 of chapter 9. It's a very obvious point that stands out. As I say, with any amount of time you spend with the text. That is the main uh, difference between the second set of plagues, of three, and the first. That whereas the first three were common to all, even Israel, in the second three, God makes a distinction. And in doing so, one of the chief purposes of the plagues, these three plagues, is evidently to make this distinction apparent. And so what is the significance of this? And here I have five things to say. The distinction that the Lord is making. First, that it is God who makes a difference between these two. It is God who distinguishes between the Egyptians and Israel. The distinction itself is real. And the consequences of this distinction are also real because he has made it so. In other words... It is a difference that makes a difference. And whenever the Lord makes a difference, it will always uh, have consequences. In other words, God does not 
set apart his people, as he does here and as he does in every age, and intend to do nothing about it. There are very, very real and definite actions he takes which manifest the reality of the distinction that he makes. In the case here, we have judgments which, which fall upon the nation of is, is Egypt, but which do not fall upon Israel and Goshen. As Matthew Henry says, the Lord, and he's quoting uh, from Second Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. And then adding on to that, he says, and will make it appear that he has set them apart for himself. Again, he not only makes the distinction, but he makes the distinction apparent. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ shed his blood. He died for us. Uh, actually, I don't think that's exactly what he says. I'm, <laughs> I'm still fixated on the morning sermon. He gave himself for our sins. All right, it's the same idea. He gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from the present evil age. According to the will of God, of our, of our God and Father. Let us see that the distinction is real. That's the first point. And it is something that God wishes uh, for us and others to see. But what is the design of providence in making this distinction? What is it that God uh, is intending to reveal about his own plan? Well, we have a very clear answer here. God is very clear that in defining his people and separating them and setting them apart, his desire for doing so is so that they may serve me. Let my people go, put a mark of distinction, set them apart and send them off in order that they may serve me. That is what God is here saying to Pharaoh. It's what he says uh, in each of these instances through Moses. And we notice here there is, and you won't be surprised to find this emphasis in my preaching, but it's a familiar emphasis in scripture. There is a specific uh, reference to worship. There is a zeal which the Lord has that his people might worship him. To worship him, that is, in the wilderness. Verse 27, we must go, he says, a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. We have an offering to make. We have worship to offer. It's something that he requires of us. And this is where I think we could all agree the difference and the distinction between the people of God and the world is most evident as well as most necessary. For how can God's people worship him so long as they are mingled with the world, as Israel was here. This is something Moses indicates when he says in verse 26, that even the world itself will not tolerate that our worship should be mingled with theirs. Look at how he puts it. It's not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God. That is, it's not right to stay in the land. It's not, uh, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Even the Lord, uh, even the world will not tolerate our worship being mingled with theirs. And so we must make a clear line of demarcation between ourselves and the world, especially with regard to worship. If our Sabbaths, beloved, do not succeed in doing this, then nothing can. 
And nothing will ever, uh, or, or, uh, or our Sabbaths, I mean, our Sabbaths will never bring with them true worship and blessing if they don't become a day of distinction. So this is not only beneficial, it is absolutely necessary. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says this, borrowing the language of Ephesians, the necessity of being set apart. Let's see, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Again, with reference to worship. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Again, using the language of Exodus, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So uh, also do we have this language uh, of being separate or holy from the world in First Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people... But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We see how the worship we offer is to be distinct from the world. It occurs not merely as we separate ourselves from the world, but equally as we maintain our commitment to worship God according to his own commandment. Again, verse 27. We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commanded us. You see, that is Moses' basic commitment when he states that we must do this. It's not a matter of debate. He's standing in the presence of a king and he says, there is no question but that we must do this. He is not, in other words, willing to entertain the possibility that he somehow wouldn't worship God. He is declaring plainly that as one of God's servants, he cannot do otherwise. And so he has a holy boldness in the presence of a king, a zeal to worship God, which cannot be quenched by the wrath of the king. I like how Matthew Henry divides the matter. He says, those that would offer an acceptable sacrifice to God must, one, separate themselves from the wicked and profane, two, they must retire from the distractions of the world, and three, they must observe the divine appointment. Uh, and I think uh, you can see all three of those points here. Separate from the world, retire from the distractions of the world, observe the commandments of God. In other words, it won't do to get out of the world, so to speak, and set our worldly affections aside on the Sabbath day if our worship does not conform to his own commandments. What will we have then? We'll still have the world. It will just be in the church. Our zeal to worship him must arise from the fact that he commands us to worship him. And so our worship must conform to his commandments. Again, we must worship God as he commands us. And we will later see the whole folly of Israel is that they began to worship God according to their own imaginations and not according to his commandments, even to the point 
that two of Levi's sons are killed by the Lord. But this is the primary way uh, that our life together is seen to be distinct from the world. Uh, the primary way I am saying that the Lord makes it to appear that we are distinct and that he knows who are his. It is in our worship. And if that distinction cannot be found there, it cannot be found anywhere. But when it is found there, then it will be evident who is the Lord's. It will be clear that we are not of the world, but that we are of heaven. Though I would say this is a strong condemnation of the modern church, which does all she can to make the church and her worship seem familiar and comfortable to those who are used to living in the world. When again, the whole point of coming into the church is to find something different. That is the express purpose of the Lord and to make that difference evident. We also see in the third place how God in making this distinction is offering his own special care and protection for his church. The church is always in his providential dealings with men, his special interest. The welfare of the church is something that he will see to. It is something which we as his people can simply take for granted. If you think of how Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 6, the easygoing, carefree believer. What is it that makes him like this? Free from worry, unlike the Gentiles. It is his consciousness of the hand of providence, which is not only directing the fate of nations, but is seeing to the welfare of the church at all times. I know it is something we sometimes worry about. Whether God is really looking after the church. Whether he is seeing to it as he did here. That she is able to worship even in a hostile nation. But this is something which the more we appreciate the difference that exists between us and others. The more confident we will be. We will begin to look for God's protection and his care. But I also must confess in the fourth, in the fourth place that this difference which is always evident between the church and the world, is sometimes more, sometimes less evident. It isn't always evident, in other words, to the same degree, which is important for us to grasp. There is always some evidence of this distinction. Even Israel in her bondage was set apart in Goshen, awaiting her deliverance, but there was a difference. But obviously, this was less of a difference than would soon appear through the Exodus event. So that is what I mean when I say it is sometimes more, sometimes less evident. And this is also clearly the case when you study the history of the church. There are times when the church and the world in a given nation almost appear to be one. I'll state, uh, I'll state it uh, or emphasize the word almost because they never fully do appear to be one. There's always a distinction and a difference. But there are times when there seems to be a sense of harmony and agreement. Uh, brief, they're always brief, but they have occurred in the history of the church. Christianity at these times seems to be the prevailing ethos of the nation. There have been times like that here in America. Obviously not today, but there have been such times. Days of revival, days of blessing. But there are also times... When the church is so distinct from the world that the difference is unmistakable. And I would certainly say, and I'm sure that you would agree that, to, that America today falls into that category quite definitely. It isn't very difficult to determine who the real Christian is 
in comparison to the world. He stands out like a sore thumb. I said that to the children this morning. If you're a Christian, you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. And guess what? The world isn't going to like you very much. The distinction is obvious today. But even then, whichever side of the spectrum you're on or somewhere in between, we have to realize that there is always an element of admixture, even within the church and certainly without. There is never a sense that things are as pure in the church as they could be. Even when things are so bad in the world that it is impossible not to tell the difference. Not only that. But there are also times when God's favor and special care of the church are more evident than others, uh, as we see even in the case of Israel. She cried out in her bondage for quite a long time before she experienced deliverance. And then certainly in our time of deliverance, it was more evident than it had been before that the Lord was looking after his church. And so we, we recognize that the church is sometimes made to pass through times of suffering and even terrible persecution, tempting her to ask, Where are his distinguishing mercies then? Well, the difference is always there. But it is worked out in God's own way and God's own timing. We can never pin down his exact method of providence. We can only notice certain tendencies and principles that he observes. But we must realize that the church is always subject to this mixture. As Israel herself plainly indicates, she was uh, to be separate. But in the end, the vast majority of her ranks were apostate. So it is often uh, with the church. More or less pure. Sometimes so little purity as to appear almost indistinguishable from the world. As Israel later appeared in the wilderness. Jesus himself describes this in the parable of the tares. The principle of admixture, that is, uh, as uh, the seed is scattered and the wheat grows, it grows up along with the tares. In other words, there is never perfect purity in the church. And sometimes, indeed, there is a great deal of corruption as the tares grow along with the wheat in the visible church. But the great thing which he assures us of in that parable and uh, also in Matthew chapter 25 is that the last day will finally resolve this apparent discrepancy, not only within the church, but as the church uh, is seen in contrast to the world. The great day will reveal, among other things, the real difference that exists between the goats and the sheep. And what a day that will be, uh, if you think of how Jesus describes it in Matthew 25, when the world is gathered before him and uh, the sheep are assigned to his right and the goats to his left. And then we will know. And then the Lord will make it to appear who are his in a way that no one could ever question or deny it. In the fifth place, we find something that appears at the end. Verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils were on the magicians as well as all the Egyptians. Another Distinction which the Lord reveals how he regards the false teachers, the false prophets and even the mighty workers of this age. What we discover is that in the day of judgment, the magicians could not stand before Moses. That is literally what is said. Another obvious way by which this distinction appears. The idea is this. The wicked cannot stand before the righteous in the day of judgment. They may stand for a time above us. But not for long. 
and not when the Lord appears in judgment, in the day of calamity, in the day when he makes it apparent who are his and who are not. And so I would say, let us not fear them now, though today they appear strong, for soon their weakness will make them fall. Always remember the distinction between them and us. And then finally, with regard to the first point, this distinction which the Lord makes, we should also see that the great end and the grand design of providence in making this distinction is stated in verse 22. Look at what he says to Pharaoh. On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there. I'll make the distinction, he says, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. Is there any surprise that that is what the Lord says here? That has been the emphasis all along. That has been the great point that the Lord is making both to Israel and to Egypt. I am the Lord and there is no other. Everything he does reveals this, especially when he comes in distinguishing mercies or distinguishing judgments. What stands out most clearly at such times is not that we are more favored than they or vice versa, but that it is uh, it is that he is the Lord. Now, we've already seen what that means in the prior sermons, but it is well that we keep seeing it. God is not content with a generic theism. What uh, the magicians had earlier said, this is the finger of God. Remember, I, I said in the prior sermon, that was a weak admission because the Lord was not content to be known as Elohim or the creator God. He wished to be known by a more peculiar name. He wished to be known by us. As the Lord, Jehovah, or Yahweh, who dwells in the land, he says. Not just in the land of Canaan, but in the land of Egypt, in a hostile pagan land. Where they imagined the pagan gods to dwell and to rule. He is the Lord who dwells in the land. And who rules the earth by the power of his own uninhibited will. Remember, that's what the name conveys. That the Lord has, an, as Kyla Dillich say, an unfettered freedom in all that he does. There is no one to hold him back or deter him or to make him to struggle. What he wills, so he will do. And it will always be. He is the Lord. And as the Lord, his great desire is the salvation and the well-being of his church. The more we know and see him as the Lord, the more this will become apparent to us. In other words, it is as the Lord that uh, we discover his prerogative to make distinctions in the first place. What can man say to the God who does so? Who says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. You see, he is speaking as the Lord when he says this. He is expressing his will, a will that man cannot resist. Who are you, O man, to question God, Paul says in Romans chapter 9, as he ponders this thought. The distinguishing love, the distinguishing mercies of the Lord. For the Lord to set his love on the church while sending plagues on the world is merely for him to express to all, I am the Lord and there is no other. So his, his sovereignty and his faithfulness to his promises are what his providence reveal. We see what it means for him to say, I am the Lord. 
I dwell in the land. We are made to know by his acts of separation, which he effects. The Lord knows who are his. And it really becomes something that is undeniable, even the, even to those who pretend they do not know him. Pharaoh, too, he says, will know me. He will know me as the Lord. How will he know me as the Lord? By the way, I distinguish between Israel and the world. This is what all of his judgments and his saving mercies reveal to the wicked and the righteous alike. So much for the distinctions, then. I have a few points to make now about the plagues. And I said there were nine points. I was wrong. There's actually 11. (laughs) There were six, and now there are five. Five observations about the plagues. The plagues are, you remember, they they are acts of judgment. They are judicial signs. They are miracles, but not the kind of miracle you ever want to experience. Not the kinds of miracles you find in the ministry of Christ. These are miracles of judgment. And what we have to see again is that the Lord is revealing something in his judgments, just as he does in all of his actions. And the first thing we see is that judgments, his judgments are a way of revealing his wrath from heaven against all unrighteousness and sin. That is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And notice the precise language uh, in connection with what we have in Exodus. For the, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Is that not an exact description of what we have here? The Lord is revealing his wrath from heaven against a nation that denied there even was a God. Men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Uh, And on and on he goes. You you could finish the chapter and you'll get the point. The same point throughout. Wicked men deny there is a God, though he is constantly revealing himself to them. And so God reveals himself to them. And in particular, not only that there is a God and that he exists, but that uh, he is angry and that the world rests under judgment in a way that man will see it and know it. It is revealed. It is observable. No serious person can consider world history and come to any other conclusion than this. That God is angry with this world. And yet this is the very thing or the very truth that men suppress in unrighteousness like Pharaoh here. They uh, become conscious and aware of it and they only harden their hearts in the face of it every time. Though it is so obvious, they just keep denying it and hardening their hearts. In this Paul says... As with Pharaoh, the sinner is left without excuse. What he plainly sees and knows, he denies. Will that be an excuse to him on the last day? No, it will not. It will only further his condemnation. And so that is the first thing. God is revealing his wrath and unrighteous, uh, his wrath uh, from heaven against all unrighteousness. But the next thing we should notice is how severe his judgments can be. Indeed, that is something that stands out here as well Uh, in the second plague, which is the fifth plague. He says, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock. So we find the word itself. The severity of the Lord is something we find. The plague upon the cattle is said to be severe, very severe, which is just a picture or an indication of his wrath against sin and unrighteousness. God is not like us, beloved. 
He doesn't tolerate wickedness. He doesn't pretend it isn't so bad. He hates it. He hates wickedness. He hates the wicked. And he will destroy them. He sets his face against them and he brings his judgments against them. Not only that, but we see that his judgments are certain. Verse 5 of chapter 9. The Lord set a definite time saying tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Uh, And you find something similar in the prior chapter. They are certain. This is something that I find great comfort in. Knowing that God knows how to deal with the wicked and that he will. He may not do so today, but he will do so tomorrow. And when he comes in judgment, his judgments will be very great. They will be severe. And they will be undeniable. Rest assured, beloved, his judgments are severe and they are certain to come. There is no greater champion of the cause of righteousness than God himself. And when we see him enter the battle... It always means terrible woe for the wicked. But at the same time, in the third place, we must also notice his goodness, even to the wicked. Pharaoh begs Moses in the fourth plague and the first plague we see here. He begs Moses to ask God to be spared. And God graciously answers that prayer against a wicked man whom he was determined to destroy. Indeed, we see in this an instance of what Paul immediately says just after Romans chapter one, chapter one. He tells us the wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness and sin uh, against men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The whole chapter follows along those same lines. But just following that, Paul speaks of the goodness of God. This is what he says. And I think we have an instance of this here. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself for you judge you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Well, certainly that's what we see. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, Paul is making both points, and we find both points here. Judgment of God, the wrath of God rightly falls upon men who practice such things. But did you also notice in the course of history, and did you also notice in your own life, how good and how kind and how patient the Lord has been? Isn't it amazing to think that the Lord has not uh, utterly undone our nation? I was just praying about that, not just in the pulpit, but throughout the week. Why does the Lord tarry? Why does he abide with our wickedness as a nation? He is incredibly patient and kind and good. But do not take his goodness for granted, because just as great as his mercies are so great uh, to are his judgments. His goodness is an opportunity for repentance. They are aimed at man's repentance. What of the man who will not repent? In this, he also makes their final damnation appear all the more just and deserved because they did not repent in the face of such amazing goodness and patience. And rather, as with Pharaoh here, they use God's goodness and mercy as a reason not to repent. Notice next, in the fourth place, the method of God. We've seen this before, but let me observe it again. 
little by little, more and more, but not all at once. If a little will do, now think of your own life in this. If a little will do to bring a man to repentance, a little affliction, a little calamity, a little bit of judgment, then he will send no more. If God can trouble you a little into repentance, uh, so ends the trouble. But with others, it takes blow after blow to bring them to see their sin. And so he sends blow after blow. Not only that. But we also see that the judgments he brings and the disruptions by which he he makes us to see our sin are suited very well to do so. They focus the issue for us in a very obvious way, as in the case of the flies. I'm saying the way God troubles us has a way of revealing our sin to us. And so with the flies, the fourth plague, if they would worship Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies, let them see that he was, as Matthew Henry says, a pretender and a usurper. And let them suffer by flies. So it was obvious that God's judgment here was aimed at overturning their false worship of a false God. Great sins require great disruptions. Little sins, little ones. But when these things lead to repentance, then God no longer appears to be against us. But still there are some who only grow harder and prouder with each blow. As Pharaoh here. And what do you think happens to them? Well, we see what happens to Pharaoh. We see it in verse 12. I've indicated it several times and the Lord indicated it in advance. We find in verse 12 that it is the Lord that hardens Pharaoh's heart now. Prior to this, it was Pharaoh who hardened his own heart. Or simply we read that his heart was hard. But now in verse 12, it is the Lord who says, or it is the Lord who hardens his heart. Moses tells us, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That is the last step. That is the last blow. When a man will not repent in the face of many blows, so the final blow is that he becomes hardened in sin, hardened in impenitence so that he cannot repent. As Matthew Henry says, speaking of this final step in the process, when willful hardness turns into judicial hardness, which he says is the sorest judgment man can uh, be under this side of hell. Which is why, uh, speaking practically, we cannot ignore the little blows or even the great ones in our lives. When God appears to be against us, he is aiming at our repentance. And just think of what will happen if we do not repent. If we refuse to repent, he will become harsher and harsher until at last he gives us over. Learn the sad lesson of Pharaoh here. The last point I'm realizing all of a sudden this isn't a very hopeful sermon, except to just realize that the Lord is the Lord. And let us rejoice in that and that he knows how to deal with the wicked. The final point is how inflexible the Lord is in his requirements. Do you think if you ignore a plague that you will change the Lord's mind? You won't. To ignore a plague does not change his mind. The amazing thing that we notice here is that every time Moses comes back to Pharaoh, he has the same thing to say. The Lord has the same demand of Pharaoh in every instance. Let my people go that they may serve me. And he sends a plague because he doesn't. And so Moses comes back again. Let my people go that they may serve me. There is an amazing lesson here to learn, not about man, but about the Lord himself. And 
And it is this. Do not think we can wear him down by our disobedience and obstinance. Do not think because we refuse to repent that he will simply go away. God's will, beloved, is not something that can be resisted or put off. This, too, is a sad lesson many have to learn. The truth is, you won't wear him down. He's going to wear you down. You remember how the Puritans spoke of of the Lord. He's the hound of heaven. He'll chase you down until he wins your heart. This is a lesson not only for individuals. It's a lesson for nations. That God is the Lord. And and what he requires of us will never diminish or weaken with the passing of time. The Lord never changes his mind. The world may think in its uh, supposed infinite wisdom that it is progressing to a higher level of morality in in its embrace of things that God hates. Always progressing, so they think. And it is an amazing, isn't it amazing that everything the world is progressing to, it seems, is something that the Lord is against. The world may be progressing in this way, but the morality of God always remains the same. It never changes. It never adjusts. It never progresses. It doesn't even adjust in the presence of sin. The moral law you find in the garden is the same moral law that you find Jesus Christ preaching in the Gospels. God never changes. Let my people go, he says again and again and again. Or he says to the church, observe my Sabbaths. Just as he said to Adam, so he says to us, honor my holy name. I am the Lord. The first and the second commandment and the third. God's zeal for these things never changes no, no matter how wicked a people may become, they may change, but he doesn't. This week I was made aware of a very helpful Chesterton quote where he said that the progressive and the conservative were guilty of the same error. Now, I couldn't wait to read what he said next because I couldn't imagine how that could possibly be true. But he said uh, they were guilty in this way, that they located morality in terms of time. The conservative locates morality in the past, the progressive in the future, but both are equally wrong because they think of morality in terms of the passing of time. Now, as someone who calls himself a conservative, I confess that I was challenged by this, but I must confess that he is surely right. I know he's right because of what is being said here and what I'm preaching to you, that true morality is timeless. True morality, what is right and what is wrong, can only be defined by God in eternity. It is not defined by time. It is not determined uh, by whatever age you are living in, even if you are uh, determined to react against that age in favor of a prior age. Our morality must always arise from the Bible. Now, if that is what you mean by a conservative, uh, then I will agree with you. I am someone who believes... And seeks to practice the Bible. Whereas the progressive, it seems, is always seeking to move past it. And to shake free from what he sees as the shackles of Christian morality. Well, this is what we see here in Exodus, isn't it? That God does not adjust his expectations of man. Because man and the world are constantly changing. And because man refuses to abide by the morality of God. The world may be going in one direction, but God remains the same. He remains inflexible in his requirements, though no one observes them. As John Murray says, the ethic of the Bible is one. 
It is not progressing. It is not adjusting. It is always the same. Again, that moral law which God gave to Adam in the garden. What God required of Adam, he requires of us. But man is always resisting God. And especially the Holy Spirit. Thinking he has found a better way. I say again, the ways of God do not change. And thank God for that. Thank him for his stability. Thank him that in this changing world, he never changes. And thank him especially that his purpose is to deliver us from this evil, uh, this evil world. And to save us by the blood of his own dear son. We'll never grow tired or out of fashion. That is a timeless message. That is a message you can hold on to whatever direction the world seems to be going in. He is the Lord. He will not change. And his gospel is as fixed as his, as his law. And uh, thank God for that. And let us praise him now by standing together and singing hymn 298. Now the blessing of the Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.